Good afternoon, dear community. So today I will speak about the superpower, you could say, the mind state, the quality of equanimity. It's usually the last of the four Brahma-viharas that it's presented last. There's loving-kindness, metta, compassion, karuna, appreciative joy, mudita, and then equanimity, upeksha. And they're usually taught in that order, but we're going to start with the last. And there's a a very powerful way in which this um, orientation, this um, practice of uh, inclining our heart-mind can really support the other three and is very much intertwined with the other three. So really you could start with any of them and uh, you would be fine. So we are in a time of polycrisis It's a word that is more and more known and used, a time of intersecting multiple pandemics, of breakdown, of disruption, of great uncertainty, and division. And it's really showing in our, in our world, in our society, with the um, crisis in mental health in many teenagers and young people, and the crisis of loneliness, So equanimity is something that is uh, really an important practice in these times. Um, And it is a face of love. It's not other than love. So what is it? The, the word upeksha in Sanskrit or upekka in Pali, they are often translated as equanimity, non-attachment, non-discrimination, impartiality, tolerance, letting go. And the word is formed from the prefix upa, which means over, 
or all around, and the root ik or iksh, meaning to look or to see. So it's this sense of seeing the full picture, being able to see all around, like you're on the top of the mountain and you can see all the sides. Gil Fransdahl says Upekka refers to the equanimity that arises from the power of observation, the ability to see without being caught by what we see. And this way of seeing without being caught gives us a great deal of peace. So he refers to the way this word was used in India colloquially, which was to see with patience, to see with understanding, so that we don't take offense at things when they aren't personal. So we're less likely to react. We can remain at ease. We can remain centered because of how we're looking, the way we're taking in. And he talks about how this kind of equanimity is sometimes compared to the love of a grandparent for their grandchild. The grandparent has raised their own children and... um, has that experience, and so they're less likely to be caught up in the drama of their grandchildren's lives. Um, So equanimity is not indifferent. It's not uncaring. It's actually very affectionate, and it offers a tangible presence, just like a loving grandparent but it's free of reactivity and anxiety. So equanimity is actually very full of love and strength. So it's one of the four faces of love that I just named. And it's it has a uniqueness because it also brings balance to these other um, forms of love. Just like these other forms of love help equanimity not fall into indifference or um, you know, coolness in, a, in an unhelpful way, in a closed-off way. So, Nyanaponikatera, in the Four Sublime States, talks about how equanimity is connected to these other three Brahma-viharas, these three immeasurable minds of love. Love imparts to equanimity its selflessness, its boundless nature, and even its fervor. For fervor, too, transformed and controlled, is part of perfect equanimity, 
strengthening its power of keen penetration and wise restraint. Compassion guards equanimity from falling into cold indifference and keeps it from indolent or selfish isolation. Until equanimity has reached perfection, compassion urges it to enter again and again the battle of the world in order to be able to stand the test by hardening and strengthening itself. Sympathetic joy gives to equanimity the mild serenity that softens its stern appearance. It is the divine smile on the face of the enlightened one, a smile that persists in spite of of his deep knowledge of the world's suffering, a smile that gives solace and hope, fearlessness and confidence. And then he shares how equanimity helps the other three. Equanimity rooted in insight is the guiding and restraining power for the other three sublime states. It points out to them the direction they have to take and sees to, to it that this direction is followed. Equanimity guards love and compassion from being dissipated in vain quests and from going astray in the labyrinths of uncontrolled emotion. Equanimity being a vigilant self-control for the sake of the final goal, awakening, does not allow sympathetic joy to rest content with humble results, forgetting the real aims we have to strive for. So equanimity gives an even-mindedness, a rootedness to, to the other three. It gives them an unwavering, courageous capacity. So I want to offer another way of understanding equanimity, which is uh, what my teacher Thich Nhat Hanh would emphasize, that it is also the practice of inclusiveness. So a lot of the teachings describing equanimity emphasize um, acceptance and although we've seen in Yanapanikatera's work this kind of uh, activating role it has in the other three Brahma-viharas where it actually steadies them I appreciate uh, Tai, his emphasis on inclusiveness because it also brings equanimity into 
into engagement into the world in this different kind of way than is often um, described or than the word upekka is, is often translated as. So this capacity of inclusiveness, this ability to stand firm and also hold hold everything not shut anything out not leave anything out so i remember i was uh, a novice nun attending uh, thai we called tiknat han thai many of his te- uh, students refer to him that way it means teacher in vietnamese so i was attending him and he uh, was approached by someone who asked him to sign a petition uh, against abortion. And Thay is a Buddhist monk who uh, encourages people not to kill. And you might think that would be something you know he would do, but he. He refused to sign this petition, and he he felt it was dogmatic and not being inclusive to uh, to not see the full picture of what are all the different situations people may be facing, and um, that sometimes actually the protection of life is. It's not so simple. It's not this clear black and white um, in, in all cases. And this came from his experience uh, in working with refugees who were uh, escaping, fleeing from the war or after the war in Vietnam and you know many situations of trauma, of rape, of, of uh, violence. So he emphasized the need for openness, for not being ideological, dogmatic, or imprisoned by our views. And so, so being inclusive means Spaciousness, offering space, giving ourself space. But how do we face this world that is uh, so complex and not be flattened by it and not let it take all of our space? <laughs> So this is uh, something Tai shares about this question. When I was a novice, I could not understand why, if the world is filled with suffering, the Buddha has such a beautiful smile. Why isn't he disturbed by all the suffering? Later, I discovered that the Buddha has enough understanding, calm, and strength That is why the suffering does not overwhelm him. 
he is able to smile to suffering because he knows how to take care of it and to help transform it. We need to be aware of the suffering but retain our clarity, calmness, and strength so we can help transform the situation. The ocean of tears cannot drown us if karuna is there. Compassion. That is why the Buddha's smile is possible. So this smile of the Buddha is rooted in equanimity. It's rooted in being able to see all around, to see with patience. And I remember having a similar moment of existential angst for myself in meditation. I was practicing with an exercise. Breathing in, I dwell in the present moment. Breathing out, I know it is a wonderful moment. That was one of the meditations we would do. And I I thought, wait a minute. <laughs> with all that's happening in this world, all the violence, hatred, inequality, all the preventable tragedies, how can we say this is a wonderful moment? And I really felt lost. I really felt stuck. And as I sat in the question of this conundrum, I also saw that the suffering, the pain is very real and it's increasing. And there are also many beings who are supporting other beings in this moment. In in any moment, there are hearts of compassion that are opening to relieve suffering. There are people standing up to injustice. There are people acting courageously, acting selflessly, acting out of wisdom to care for others, to relieve suffering, to teach to show a different way. There are people caring for the planet. There are people caring for other species. There are species caring for other species. The more than human world is part of this inclusiveness. It's showing us the way. In every corner of the planet, there are those quietly doing things no one else wants to do, caring for forgotten people and places, and doing what needs to be done. And so when I took that in, that larger picture, I was able to touch that, yes, this present moment is a wonderful moment. Suffering doesn't have to disappear for beauty, for wonder to be there. And life is about all of these things. It's about 
holding all of that. There is great terror, pain, injustice, and there is great love and great wisdom. And they coexist. And often, if we bring our practice to the pain and the suffering, we can transform that into incredible energy that is helpful. So, inclusiveness, not taking sides. This comes from deep insight, this ability to stand in this place of strength. And Yanapani Katera, in his uh, Four Sublime States, writes about two insights that equanimity is based on. One is the understanding of karma, understanding how the ways that we live, how our actions of body, speech, and mind produce fruits that are inescapable. And the other insight is the insight of not-self, of no separate self. That's what allows us to um, manifest equanimity in the world. And so he says... To establish equanimity as an unshakable state of mind, one has to give up all possessive thoughts of mine, beginning with little things, from which it is easy to detach oneself, and gradually working up to possessions and aims to which one's whole heart clings. One also has to give up the counterpart to such thoughts, all egoistic thoughts of self, beginning with a small section of one's personality, with qualities of minor importance, with small weaknesses one clearly sees, and gradually working up to those emotions and aversions which one regards as the center of one's being. To the degree we forsake thoughts of mine or self, equanimity will will enter our hearts. So a few days after the insurrection at the Capitol, January 6, 2021, I was talking with my dad. We were reflecting on how there was ample warning and it wasn't prevented. We were reflecting on the mind that engages in such uh, violence. My dad is a Christian minister and a Dharma teacher, a Buddhist teacher. And he said, when we see ourselves as victims, that's the separate self. That's this holding on to this notion of self. And when we see ourselves as beloved, that is no self. So when we see ourselves as beloved, we are loved, we are also loving, we are full of metta, loving kindness, 
then we see ourselves in everyone and everyone in ourself. And we have a force with which to meet the ignorance, the discrimination, even the violence in others, so that it doesn't cripple us by making us hateful. When we see ourselves as beloved, we have no enemies. This was Thai's gift during the war in Vietnam to, to all of us. He said, other people are not our enemies. A human is never our enemy. Only delusion, hatred, and ignorance within the human mind is what we need to put our attention towards uh, uprooting. As even if we eliminate a, a person, the ignorance, the hatred, the confusion will continue. We know this, we see this. It's possible to uproot ignorance and hatred and discrimination in our own minds. We know this. We can look at the Buddha and so many teachers and great beings. They have managed to do this. So if we see ourselves as beloved, not as victims, we can encounter those who we disagree with or who we are morally opposed to without malice, without dehumanizing. That's the power of equanimity and inclusiveness. The activist Barbara Deming writes about the two hands of nonviolence in an essay, Revolution and Equilibrium. She says, with one hand we say, stop what you are doing, I refuse to honor the role you are choosing to play, I refuse to obey you, I refuse to cooperate with your demands, I refuse to build the wall and the bombs. I want to disrupt the easy pattern of your life. But then the advocate of nonviolence raises the other hand. It is outstretched, raised outstretched, maybe with love and sympathy, maybe not, but always outstretched. With this hand we say, I won't let go of you or cast you out of the human race. I have faith that you can make a better choice than you are making now. And I'll be here when you're ready. Like it or not, we are part of one another. So she is speaking to the many faces of love. Equanimity, inclusiveness, is this face of love that says, I will stop you from doing harm, however I can. I will hold you accountable, but I will never stop believing in your humanity, in the possibility of us finding a path to reconciliation. 
I often feel like the talks I'm giving are also for me. I woke up at three this morning and I was so angry at a a company that I have been a customer of that I feel has really screwed me over. (laughs) Has led me on and had me invest all this money only to turn around and say, nope, sorry, we can't do what we told you we could do. Just like that, like, no big deal. And so I'm like, fuming and composing a, you know, WTF response. <laughs> and, and I'm like, and I have to give a talk on equanimity tomorrow. <laughs> so is this worth losing my sleep over? And, and I'm aware of the importance of speaking out to say this is not okay, this way of treating people. Not having accountability is not okay. It feels terrible to be the recipient of it. But it also, what I can also feel underneath that is more than my personal Emotions about feeling mistreated and feeling disregarded are the feelings of, I want them to be the best company they can be. I want them to live up to who they're supposed to be. It's, there's something in there that's more than just revenge or... I want justice, I want you to pay. It's like, I want you to be the full human being that you are, or group of humans. So I'm wrestling with this, you know. As we speak, I'm trying to figure out how to stand up for myself and hold them accountable and see the whole picture. See with patience, you know. See with humility, maybe, also. What, what were some things I missed in this interaction that maybe would, you know, be good for me to reflect on as well? You know, my, um, my great-grandmother, Mudro, we called her Mudro. We, one of the grandchildren couldn't pronounce mother, and it became Mudro. She lived to be 101. She buried five of her six children in their, you know, she just outlived them. They lived to be 50s, 60s. And she was not a bitter person. She grew up in Mississippi, in Oklahoma. She had so many stories to tell about life in the South. And, and she was a, 
a refugee seeking asylum coming to the north, as so many black people were, and still encountered Ku Klux Klan violence in Michigan and had to escape and flee to Illinois. But all of the stories she shared of of the crippling poverty that she endured and her, my grandmother, her children endured. I never heard bitterness in her voice. I think she, she saw herself somehow as a beloved. And I, I'm trying to channel my great-grandmother when I think about this company, right? Of, you know, what kind of strength it took for her to survive, just to survive the life that she had, and to pass on to me in these stories, in these, just her way of being, someone who was happy, Someone who loved to tease and tell jokes and make you laugh and had a twinkle in her eye and was clear-minded until the day she died. She just stopped eating. That's how she died. She's like, I'm ready. I'm just going to stop eating. You know. Serious equanimity. And her, her way of showing up. So, this big-heartedness, right? Being able to take in the messed up ways life unfolds, the unexpected ways, and to, to hold it in some bigger, bigger container than just ourself and how this impacts ourself, right? And so when we are involved in in a conflict, right? When people we love are in a conflict with each other, how do we do that? Holding it all. I recall a time when people, two people that I loved, they're relationship completely broke down and and they stopped talking to each other and I listened to both of them and I did my best to stay in a skillful loving relationship with both of them not taking sides not judging or blaming one or the other but trying to see the suffering in each of them and how delicate that that was also because 
I could see they knew I was still friends with the other and they were worried I would turn against them. And so if I put myself in either of their shoes, I knew I wouldn't want the third person to turn away from me because of the conflict between the other two. And so being honest with each of them, I'm, I'm, I'm still connected to this other person and I'm still connected to you. I care for both of you. So love, that kind of love, it, it's based on this insight of no separation between me and you, between the self and the other. If I think I am loving you, I'm doing you a favor by loving you, then there's separation. There is, there's a division. That's not the full expression of, of this kind of love. So I had the wonderful chance to watch the film Gandhi uh, recently. I watched it as a child, but I forgot most of what happened. So I got to watch it again. And After the partition dividing India and Pakistan after uh, independence, um, as part of that partitioning, there was great violence with Hindus and Muslims killing each other. And you see Gandhi ready to fast until death to end the violence and the bloodshed. It's so heartbreaking to him and so many others who help to bring about independence. And so there's this scene where he's staying in a Muslim home in the midst of the riots and Finally, the fighting stops. And a group of Hindu men come to him, and one of them implores him to eat. He says, at least you should survive. I, I have nothing left to make of my life. The Muslim people came and killed my son, and I have killed uh, Muslim children, and there's nothing more I can do to redeem myself now. And Gandhi says to him, find a Muslim child whose parents have been killed. Find a child who needs a parent who's Muslim and raise him as your son. And not only that, raise him as a good Muslim and you will redeem yourself. That is how you can bring peace to your heart. So this incredibly powerful practice of refusing to see anyone as our enemy, even if we have considered them an enemy, 
even if we've killed children, to make amends by adopting a child, raising them as our own. So, with equanimity, we have the chance to practice letting go. That's what connecting to this truth of not-self is, right? Letting go of all the places where we're caught. So it helps us to take this longer, bigger view, knowing that we each have our own journey and we can't always know what someone else's journey needs to be, much, much less our own. We don't always see the logic of someone's trajectory. But we know that what the Tao says, life is made up of 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. The beauty, the happiness, the wonder, the connection, the belonging, and all of the separation, the depression, the anxiety, the despair, it's all part of a human life. It doesn't mean we don't try to alleviate suffering when it can be alleviated, but we touch great freedom when we can accept that we don't get to control how things are. And that suffering can very well be part of our path, an important part of our path. I know I wouldn't be here on this path if it weren't for a lot of suffering in my life. So what this attitude does of seeing the inevitable uncertainty of life, it helps us not to make things worse because we can do that real quick. When things don't go the way we want, we can add a whole lot of extra stuff on there, right? This phrase, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. We, don't, we won't get to avoid pain, but how we deal with that pain can be skillful, can be artful, or not. And if we have even some measure of equanimity, we can avoid adding on the suffering. So it helps us let go, because we just, we see we're not in control And we can even enjoy life and its ups and downs when we accept that we're on a ride. It can help us actually appreciate it more deeply. So I'll close with this poem from Hafiz. Tripping over joy. 
What is the difference between your experience of existence and that of a saint? The saint knows that the spiritual path is a sublime chess game with God and that the beloved has just made such a fantastic move that the saint is now continually tripping over joy and bursting out in laughter and saying, I surrender. Whereas, my dear, I'm afraid you still think you have a thousand serious moves. Let's take a few breaths together in stillness. Just a brief announcement that tomorrow morning at the 8.15 sit with instructions, we'll be doing our um, renunciation of technology. So you may have already uh, given up your phone when you uh, registered or, or after you can still come up and take part in the ceremony. And if you would still like to uh, release your phone, uh, set your phone free, (laughs) Uh, please bring it to that session and we'll have a a ceremony where uh, we'll invite you to come up and uh, place your phone in a basket and bow and we'll chant... um, So um, that's happening tomorrow at 8.15. Thank you for your kind attention.